Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Scratching the Surface podcast. I am your host, Austin Douglas. And today we have our very first guest interview. And this is a gentleman that has been a teacher and mentor to me over the course of the last few years, um, pretty much ever since I found the MGIA and the fact that you can uh, renew your pesticide license through classes. And so today we are going to be speaking with Gary Eichen. So, Gary, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? Spiffy. <laughs> that's uh, that's Gary's humor and mentality. And yeah. you either love it or you hate it, I think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, doing great. Doing fine. Good. Well, Gary, I wanted to have you on. You know, we were talking before, but basically you have a super in-depth knowledge in plant health care. And you've been in this industry a long time. So if you don't mind, can you give us kind of like the the elevator pitch of how long you've been in this industry, what you've done throughout the industry, and you know where you are now. Sure. Um, I started back in 1988 at Chemlon Services uh, Company, which was at the time the, the largest lawn care, plant health care, actually tree and shrub care uh, company in the United States. They were they were pretty much national, and they actually had a separate company called Chemlon Limited in Canada. So I started there in 88. I was there, jeez, uh, I want to say two or three years, four years, maybe. Um, and then I went to a company called Barefoot Grass Lawn Service, which was starting to compete um, with Chemlon. I would call them regional, not national. Um, I was there for two or three years, uh, but the pay was pretty lame. And the hours were just atrocious. Um, it was uh, every day, 0700 to probably 2000 hours because you were also the sale, uh, eight o'clock. You were also the salesman uh, for your area. So you did your production and then you sold or you, you ran estimates that were given to you too. Then at night, you had to call those estimates to ask people if they got them, et cetera. So you did a full day of production and you came in and called from about five o'clock to eight o'clock. Um, and you were on salary. Uh, the Chi I, I think we called it at the time Chinese overtime. And I apologize, <laughs> totally politically incorrect nowadays to talk that way. But what it was, was about 10% of your hourly wage was added for each hour. So you were making maybe a dollar fifty, a dollar eighty-five an hour extra for those overtime hours, which boils down to practically nothing. So I worked there for about three years, and then I went back to Kimlong. Um And the management had changed, and it was—I always felt like uh, it was a good fit for me. But unfortunately, um, uh, my initial go-round with Kimlon was a no benefits employee that I had no, no vacation time accruing. I had no medical benefits, seasonal help, so to speak. So I stayed there about two, three years, and then it was bought by True Green. And then things started changing. Um, excuse me, we were bought by Service Master, which tried to turn us into a company called Ecoscape. And then we were bought two years later by True Green. So there was a whole lot of upheaval. And it was at that point, I went with True Green for about a year. And then my buddy called me at a, a family-owned company based in Troy, Michigan. And I went there. So I've been in the industry. This is my 36th season in the industry. I am now the uh, assistant service line director for save tree LLC based out of Bedford Hills, New York. Um, I, I work in both plant health care and lawn care, um, pretty much equal split. I help out the service masters, our service, the, the uh, service line directors uh, with projects. And mostly what I do here is teach. Um, I teach arborists, which are the salespeople. Um, I teach them. I teach specialists. I teach anybody that wants to listen. I do manager classes. Um, anything, anybody that wants to learn can log into the seminars that I create and, and we talk plan healthcare for an hour or two. 
and hopefully it helps some of these people um, increase their knowledge base, which I think is absolutely critical to properly selling and um, creating programs that are effective for clients. You got to know what you're doing. Basically, you got to have a foundation. Um, you have to be an expert, but you have to have a foundation of knowledge for both plan health care and lung care. Um, so that's what Savitry has let me do ever since they purchased the company that I was in in Troy, uh, which was called Mike's Tree Surgeons. I was there for 22 years. Um, and then they purchased us in October of 2018. Since that time, uh, pretty much I have been teaching. Um, so it's. Yeah, that's kind of where I met you was uh, doing classes for the MGIA. Yep. And, um, you know, like I said, you're, you're, a, you're a book full of knowledge. You have so much. Now I could have you on this podcast probably, you know, 20, 50, 100 times and still not extract all the stuff that you know. Yeah. But that's a. Well, it's, it comes from, believe it or not, it's not a, a, a background education. I'm, I've never gone to college uh, for anything, let alone forestry or urban forestry or whatever. What it comes from, the knowledge base comes from, is me researching the classes that I teach to make sure the information I'm giving to other people is accurate. Um, and so creating a PowerPoint, I know people see that as maybe a day or two process. Um, that boxwood class that I taught, I don't know, was about a month ago, maybe something like that. It was a four-hour boxwood class. It was in it was in February. Yeah. February? Yeah, yeah, so that's how time is flying. Um, that was about a week to create that boxwood class because each pass, there was six or eight different pest issues in there. Each one was researched to make sure the information going on my slides is correct to the people who are attending the class. There's nothing worse than paying for a class, attending it, thinking you're getting accurate stuff, and you're not. And I actually had attended two classes in the past years ago that were that way, um, that the speaker was not accurate. And people are dependent on accurate information. Sorry, yeah, but... So that's, that was my goal whenever I started teaching, which has been now like 15 years, I think I've been teaching, um, was to make sure that everything I taught was, was scientifically accurate and backed by real science, not pseudoscience. Um, I use peer-reviewed studies. I don't deal with people that just spew out stuff you don't you don't go on Billy Joe Bob's website that's talking about all organic this that and the other thing. You actually go and you you look up what the PhDs have written down and pure verified. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which that's what we need, right? Yeah. Well, and, that's. I mean, it sounds crazy, um, and it sounds like holy crap, man! To be an urban forester, I got to deal with PhD information. Well, no, not really. What you need to deal with is the fact that scientific information has to be science-based and i know that doesn't sound or it sounds redundant or or maybe a dichotomy but it's really not because you can take information written by a phd and put it in layman's terms and get points across to people it doesn't have to come in the same language um, that it may have been written in as a scientific paper so there's there's that there's that aspect of it it's kind of bringing it uh, to the people in a common sense way, but just making sure what you're saying is science backed. Yeah. Or, and that makes sense. Right. Well, that's a, a super extensive background. I, I have to ask personally, what made you stick with, um, lawn care plant health? What made you even go and get that job in the first place? Like, why didn't you end up, you know, as a welder or construction, like a lot of people in your generation, you know, well, did? I was a bartender for 18 years prior to the bartender okay. the industry. And my roommate uh, was a Kemlon lawn specialist. And I'd come home from work uh, two, three o'clock in the morning, right? And if he was out, if he'd been up partying or something, he was up and we'd talk. And I'd tell him about what it's like bartending, you know, 
drunk people and <laughs> can't have intelligent conversations very often with people. And you have to be a Democrat at one end of the bar and a Republican at the other. You're there to make money. State in your opinion is like the stupidest thing a bartender does. You are what anybody wants you to be because you're there to make money. And yeah, because if, if you agree with them or if you flow with them, then they'll give you a better tip. Yeah, I Absolutely. Get that. So, you know, after a while, being that kind of person, that's just not my personality. I tend to like to state what I think and what I feel. Uh, so after 18 years, I was definitely burning out on it. Uh, and he said, dude, you know, outside job, working outside, you can do um, you can get away from people. You can talk to people if you want to. The clients come out. But a lot of times you you spend the whole day and you don't see anybody. And I thought, geez. That's a big <laughs> that change from bartending. That's what I need now, a complete <laughs> change of, of environment and atmosphere. So I started at Kemlon in Madison Heights, Michigan, doing aerations. Okay. And that is an interesting way to start in this industry because it's a physically demanding job. Um, it is a lot harder than what people think it is. Uh, you don't have power steering on an aerator. Uh, they are tough. They are heavy. Um, so it was a challenging job. Uh, but I realized that I liked it. And then when I got the opportunity to become a rider, uh, which was like an assistant to the lawn care specialist, Kind of like that, too. That was pretty cool, looking at diseases and insects and stuff in lawns. And then uh, tree and shrub care, I became a rider over there as well. And that was that's when I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, insects and diseases of trees and shrubs is freaking cool. It's, it's a small world. It's a niche world. There's no question. Um, but some of the stuff that occurs to trees is just mind blowing in its complexity. And, and I wanted to be a part of that, being able to diagnose those situations and problems. And it was like, no matter what I knew, it was not enough. I needed to know more. <laughs> I so know I'm that feeling to it. Yeah. I know that feeling. I, I think in the last year, I've probably spent close to a thousand dollars on books in regards to trees and shrubs. Yeah. You know, when, when I became a certified arborist, it's like, well, you know, this book's a pretty good base, but then there's so many other books out there that have so much more detail. And uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. I thought I had one here that I thought I had one in this library next to me, but there's a book called Plant Healthcare. Literally, it's called Plant Healthcare. The only place I found it, I think it's out of print. The only place I found it is Amazon. Um, it's got a green cover. That book is outstanding foundational piece of reading material for people that have a basic understanding. Maybe they work at a company that just does fertilization or something, and they want to get into the insect disease management side of it. That book is absolutely incredible. It's like 50 bucks. It's not cheap because I think they have stopped uh, printing it. I think so it'll probably be hard to find. Probably yeah. So, so if you're listening to this, then you, you should go look at that and see if you can snag up the last copy. It might be worth something in the future. Oh, oh that too. But well, we have two <laughs> copies upstairs uh, because it's it's actually one of the best foundational books for plant health care I've ever seen. I reckon I've, I've had it in a couple of classes I've taught slide at the end where I show the cover and say, if this is, you know, this is a book you need to really start understanding what plant health care is really well written. Yeah. Well, I think we got a pretty good base on, you know, your background, what you've done. You've been in this industry a long, long time, man. Um, you know, and you had to have seen some changes in this industry since you oh, yeah. started. And so oh, yeah. do you mind, you know, just talking about what sort of changes you've seen happen in this industry in, you know, your long career that you've had in this? I know, I know chemicals have changed. I know probably laws have changed, but like yeah. what specifically stands out in your mind? What the, the number one thing that really I notice the most is this industry is a dichotomy of complete polar opposites in two aspects. Number one, programs have not changed at all. A lawn care program is the same as it was the day I started in this industry, probably a decade before I started. 
five, six applications. We control and fertilizer. Companies sometimes now do eight applications because they want your checkbook. But basically, that stayed the same. Plant health care, not much different. In a lot of places, it's still called tree and shrub care. Um, they don't train specialists to be able to delineate between what actually needs treatment. There are still companies out there in 2023 cover spraying everything because they can't, they don't have time to train their people or they don't want to invest in training their people. And so it's easier just to say spray everything, right? And, and you don't have to learn the difference between a pine and a spruce or a rhododendron and an azalea, right? Just go out and spray everything. So the programs have basically stayed the same. You start with a horticultural oil. You maybe do a spring furt. You have three or four sprays. You end up with a fall furt, winter desiccant, anti-desiccant, right? Wax. So that's that stayed this. What has evolved is the the product selection diversity, and number one, a much more concise and uh, accurate knowledge base of what trees and shrubs actually need. When we started doing this, and what the biggest thing that has changed in this industry is the fertilization process. Physically, it's the same two-foot grid pattern, X number of ounces per injection site, whatever. The choice of products has exploded. And the understanding that using fast-release fertilizer is horrific for trees, and more importantly, horrific for the soil. As you are changing soil function by putting in fast-release fertilizer, you're causing the microbes that convert that fertilizer into usable forms to work at an incredible pace. And therefore they don't replicate and they burn out. And you're actually destroying soil, soil function by continually introducing these fast release forms, urea, nitrogen, high nitrogen fertilizer with no slow release components. ISA about 10 years ago, and I was actually asked to help review the book they wrote a fertilization process book, How to Fertilize Trees and Shrubs. Totally changed a lot of people's way of doing stuff. We now know that you need a, a 3 one ratio of fertilizer is ideal for trees with a minimum of 40% slow-release element in it so that you're not causing the microbes that do um, mineral conversion to work too hard. Now you also have things like humates. You have things like North Atlantic sea kelp, which are extremely high in cytokinins, uh, tannins, lignans, all of the chemicals that exist in trees, but exist at lower levels than they do in, in North Atlantic sea kelp. If you just think about it logically and, and put aside any kind of forestry knowledge and you look at how sea kelp grows, it grows completely underwater and it is still a photosynthetic plant. Now, what kind of energy mass must that plant have to be able to grow and photosynthesize in one-tenth the amount of sunlight that a tree has? That's going to be pretty intense, right? The that are in those leaves of North Atlantic sea kelp are exponentially much higher than any evergreen or any deciduous tree. And so you take those and you harvest that seed kelp and you convert it into a liquid and you soil inject that into the ground. Now you're not only providing uh, chemicals that are needed by the tree, you are also providing a food source for the microbes that are working in the ground. So you're balancing soil function, not changing it. All right. So years ago, that wasn't those weren't available. There's humic acid now being mined out of the um, United States, Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, where they found um, stratas, layers of humic acid. Humic acid is foundational to all life on this planet, especially microbes and especially plant roots. 
Um, and it has amazing properties that people never realized before until they started using these products. Humic acid can sequester salt molecules. It just wraps itself around them. So if you have plants in, in parking lots that snow with salt has been pushed up on top of them, you can soil inject humic acid in the ground and it'll sequester the salt that is slowly moving down through the soil. You can literally use it to remediate herbicide injury in lawns because most herbicide is salt-based. And so it will lock on to those herbicide ions and inactivate them. But mostly what it does is it takes minerals, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, zinc, boron, molybdenum, everything trees need that's in the soil. And it will grab them and carry them directly to plant roots. So we didn't have this 10 years ago, right? We didn't have it probably five years ago. I think it has, it's been relatively new on the market. I think probably five years understatement, more like, more like eight, six or eight. But it's well, an it's, outstanding it's, product and highly beneficial to plant roots. None of that was available back in the days when we were using fast-release fertilizer for tree growth. What you're doing, and I probably should explain a little bit of why you shouldn't use fast-release, is because you're putting on top growth on the tree, but not enhancing the root system. And so you're asking the tree roots to support more top canopy, with the same amount of root mass. And that is a stress factor. You are absolutely, absolutely increasing the stress on that tree. So there's there's all kinds of changes that have occurred with products. Um, insect controls, disease controls are more, uh, I'll call it user-friendly. Back in the day, we used a lot of seven, which is a carbamate, which is a cholinesterate inhibitor, which is a part of your blood system that can be inhibited by that product. We were blood tested every six weeks back when I first started. Um, and our cleanup insect control, our last spray of the year was done with Durzban at 32 ounces per 100 gallons. Um, and that is a major organophosphate that has been removed from the market for all residential and commercial uses. So that has changed. We're now into the synthetic perethroids and permethrins, which are synthetic versions of an organic um, molecule that occurs in chrysanthemum flowers. So it's there's the mammalian toxicity of our products has dropped exponentially. Um, none of these products collect in your system. You expel them and it's that has changed dramatically. It's the programs that there's really no way to deliver what we do other than the way we've always did it. What has changed is how we do it and when we do it. Basically. Yeah, it's it sounds like there is a, a big shift. You know, when you're talking about fertilization, you know, it started to become instead of looking at the tree, watching it grow, it's what's going down below. Right. Sure. What's the science of the soil? What's the science of the microbes? What is this doing? And from my understanding, in the last, what, 10, 15 years, the science of microbiology and soil and trees has really exploded. Yeah. Right. We've, we've made a lot of breakthroughs and seen how things connect. And so now we're changing, like you said, the products that we're using, using more uh, softer products that actually feed the microbes and then the microbes do the work to feed the tree. Right. Yeah, and it's it's also been and it's it's a societal shift too. Um, the demand for these new products and the demand for changes in how chemicals are used would never have occurred. We would still be using seven and Durzban today if people hadn't spoke out about environmental concerns. Right? It's it's the voices that make the companies sit back and go, uh oh, we we got to rethink how we're doing things here we're not going to be able to continue to sell Durzban. All pesticides are reviewed on about a six to seven year basis. And Durzban was renewed how many times since World War II? Up until about late 80s, it was still on the market. And so if it was started, we'll say 1940, and it was just up until 1980, 40 years on a six or seven year cycle, that means it was renewed five or six times. 
when did it not get renewed? When people started talking about the environment and when people started becoming concerned. And then the EPA stood up and said, okay, all right, so we, we got to get rid of some of these products, right? So it's people that make the changes. Um, and it's people that demand the changes and force change on these companies that would have continued making these products if people hadn't spoken out against it. So it's it's kind of a circle, circle. But that circle got broke, um, I would say, big time, mid-90s. By the mid-90s, there was a lot of voices that were coming out saying, look, we got to change how we're doing things here. All, all the 60s and 70s kids grew up and then they started to... To yeah, speak their yeah, mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I got to ask you, Gary, you know, I thought about this the other day because this, this, that wasn't the first time I heard you say this, where you had to get your blood tested weekly spraying mm -hmm. products. Now, if I was to come into this industry and as a prerequisite to being a technician somewhere, whatnot, if they said, oh, yeah, and by the way, we have to test your blood every week, I'm out. Like, what, what the hell do you have me doing? What, what made you stay through that? You're just like, okay, it's all good? Yeah, I mean, basically, because it was the lack of personal knowledge at the time about really what they were testing and why was the need for the testing. They were honest with us. They had told us exactly what it was. You're using carbamate class um, pesticides, and, and then at the end of the organophosphate class, they tend to collect in your liver. They supplied us with uh, all the necessary PPE, we went out with everything we could possibly get to protect ourselves. But at that time, in that era of the late 80s, early 90s, um, you didn't really have the personal knowledge base to sit there and think about things the way we do now. If, if I'd have known then what I know now about organophosphates and carbamates, and at that age too, where you're thinking you're immortal anyway, right? Yeah. Um, you don't worry about that kind of stuff. And that's where most of it was. I mean, Kemlon Services was not a schlock outfit. Tree and Shrub uh, specialists had to have a bachelor's of science in a related field to be a Tree and Shrub specialist. Um, they did not. I was the first person in Michigan promoted from assistant to specialist without a bachelor's of science. So really? it was, it was that that company only hired professionals, mostly forestry grads from Michigan State, were the guys that were working there when I was there. So it's it's not that they were hiding things or anything. They told us the truth. It's we had a different mindset. A, we were much younger, so we believed we were immortal, and and two. We didn't have really the personal knowledge and we didn't really strive to gain that personal knowledge about what organophosphates and carbamate pesticides were. Um, and I think that more than anything else, right, today, no, the kids would not come into an industry that use products <laughs> like that. And that's part of the reason they're gone, without question. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, I remember the first time I heard you say that at a class and it's like, there's no way that I would ever go into this industry if somebody said we have to test your blood every week. Yeah. And, yep. but like you said, things were different back then, right? We yep. didn't really have no, the internet wasn't really a big thing. Nope. And so you, you couldn't look for it. It wasn't out there. Nope. It might've been out there, but it was probably locked up in a library somewhere. We had two way radios in our trucks to communicate with base. Oh, no cell phones. <laughs> cell phones yeah. didn't exist. So it, well, that's, that was, it was just a different era and things have sped up. Knowledge has sped up and there's been a good and bad with that. There's a trade-off with that. As I said earlier, some of the knowledge is not accurate. And so it's, it's agenda driven knowledge, um, which is extremely dangerous to me. Agenda driven knowledge is worse than no knowledge at all. I would rather have people be uninformed than to be inaccurately informed. And unfortunately, there's no way to really delineate between that agenda-driven knowledge and agenda-driven science and what is true science, what is peer-reviewed, studied, true, accurate science. It's a really hard thing because the internet is full of both. It's a totally free place, man. 
People can yeah, well, post and say what they want, which is fine. That's great. Constitution, freedom of speech is great. But when you're making it sound like you're science-based and you're putting a spin on science to get your personal point across, that's not great. That's yeah, and I th horrific. I, th I think you've pointed that out where if you do a simple Google search and you just type in pesticides, you know, see what's the first thing that pops up. Is it a right. peer-reviewed study or is it, you know, Billy Bob Joe's website talking about how dangerous and deadly they are, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. And it's always something to be aware about, right? Because, you know, from our from our perspective, right, as business owners and technicians out there, if a, if a client thinks you're doing something wrong and or they're using the wrong product or you're killing something, they're going to go to Google. They're going to type in whatever. And who knows what's going to pop up? Yep. Is it peer reviewed? Is it not? And, yep. you know, you taught me a good lesson in a class where you should just have all your labels and SDS sheets on the truck. Yep. And actually, two days ago, I spent an entire day printing out labels and SDS sheets. And now I have a book that's like that. Yeah, thick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so it's just but that's a good lesson. Right. And and it's a shame that it's like that. But again, yep. you know when it comes to agendas, we, we can't control the search engines. They have their own agenda and they tell you, they push what they want. Yep. So it's, it's unfortunate, but that's the industry. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, we also, as an industry, spend a lot of time with our head in the sand. Um, we didn't want to deal with controversy, even though we knew that a lot of the controversy uh, driven toward us, was based on the fact that there were companies out there that were just shysters, that would just steal you blind and were doing terrible things, using horrible products and all of that. And it was true. And so the industry gained a bad name. And so rather than fight back, we avoided all controversy. Um, Dow Chemical produced a uh, VCR tape, which tells you when this was, uh, um, called the unwanted spotlight. And it was shipped out to every company that does this for a living. And you were told how to avoid journalists, how to avoid TV stations, just stop spraying. Don't even reel up your hose, drop the gun on the lawn, walk back and sit in your truck. If they don't get a good picture and a good video, they're going to drive away. So the whole industry at that time was based on avoiding any further controversy. Um, the owner of, it was, this was 89, 90. Um, it was one of the first years, of, and it was a TV show that was investigative journalism, and I can't even remember the name of it, but they interviewed the Kim Lawn CEO, and it was, he was one of the brothers, and it was the Duke brothers at the time that owned Kim Lawn, and he, they interviewed one of them, and it, he, he raved about it. He sent out a memo to all the branches at Kemlon saying, we've had this great interview with these guys. They were awesome. It lasted like an hour and great information. So watch it tonight, Thursday night, eight o'clock, whatever. Right. So we went home, we watched it. Ambush. Absolutely. They tore him they apart. Used about six to eight minutes of him talking about the safety of pesticide and how the industry was evolving to address these issues, but he wasn't on the screen. Instead, it was footage of a golf course that had sprayed diazinon with about 15 or 20 dead Canadian geese laying on the fairway. Hmm. And they didn't say that it was the employees of the golf course. They made it look like it was Kimlon that had done that application. They didn't even say it was a golf course and you couldn't tell it was just a pond where obviously the geese were heading at some point and didn't make it, unfortunately, because the area was treated or they caught drift. To this day, we don't know what exactly happened. We know it wasn't us or anyone else in the industry. It was employees from the golf course. Uh, but it was an ambush. They absolutely destroyed Kemlon, and it was completely inaccurate. And they took six to eight minutes of him speaking out of an hour, and that's all it was. And then they did everything else about how dangerous diazinon. So that's what really triggered the response of, okay, from now on, we're not talking to anybody. That's it, we're done. And that went on for a long time. And I eventually, I got into uh, teaching based on that reason. 
Uh, there was a program developed by the MGIA in, a, in association with South Oakland County Watershed Authority called the Healthy Lawn Care Program for Watershed Protection. And the company I was with at the time, Mike's Tree Surgeons and three other lawn care companies were the founding companies in this program designed to reduce pesticide usage, to give the client what the client wanted as far as lawn care, not demand six or eight applications, buffer zones around lakes, streams, and waters, um, use zero phosphorus fertilizer, which wasn't the law at the time. Uh, there was all kinds of things. So I started speaking, um, doing classes on this program to get people, homeowners interested in signing up with a company that was part of this program. At the time, there were four. There's now 18, um, 18 or 20. It's kind of fallen. The program's kind of fallen on hard times, mostly due to the pandemic. And I'm sure that had an effect on a lot of things. Yeah, of course. But that's where I got into teaching, was teaching that class about proper lawn practices for homeowners, how to take care of their own lawn, and those that wanted a lawn care company that did stuff right. So that was my first experience, actually, with public speaking. Well, you, you stuck with it. You know, a few 15 years or whatever you've got in doing it. Mm. Well, that, that's, you know, we talked about a, a lot of changes. I mean, that's that's pretty substantial. And I don't know that it's the same way now where if you, you know, if a homeowner kind of calls you out or somebody walking by calls you out, if you just drop the gun and walk away yeah. I, or if you actually approach them and you say, no, ma'am, you know, here's the label. Here's the SDS here. Right. right. Like we're not afraid to talk to you because what we're doing, science based, science back. Right. But. You know, I think about this industry a lot and I wanted to ask you, you know, what sort of career pathways do you think exist for people looking to get into this? Whether whether they're completely out of this industry, they have no idea about it or whether they have a lawn care company and they're just cutting lawns or if they're a landscaper. I mean, what what could somebody expect to get into this? What kind of positions are there? What kind of careers are there in this? Well, it, it depends on what you basically what you want to do. You can, this, this industry is a little bit more expansive than what people think. Um, there are, you can start in this industry, expand your horizon to become a state forester, or you could work for the, and I can never get the name of this agency right. To me, they were always the Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ in Michigan but I think they're called the Great Lakes Environmental. They changed their name somehow. Eagle. Yeah, Eagle. And, I, and I can never remember what it is uh, because it's about six or eight words. It's some long, really cheerful thing that they created. But you can end up going there. You can go to work for the state as a forest ranger. Um, this is a stepping stone for me personally, I started out as a guy doing aerations, and now I teach 80 branches nationwide. Um, and so it is what you make it. You get out of anything what you put into it. I put into this a whole lot of work, um, a whole lot of work. There were times where I was working 60, 65 hours a week as manager at Mike's Tree Surgeons. Um, I would do most of the tree injections and run um, a $2 million plant healthcare division and a half a million dollar lawn care division uh, because I didn't want my specialist stopping to do injections. I wanted the sprays done timely and to get fungicide on trees, keep them spraying. I'd go out and do the injections and then also run the division. So extremely stressful, extremely difficult a massive learning experience. It teaches you about life. The harder you work, when you do achieve something, the achievement is much higher. You feel like you've really gained something by putting in all those hours. Now, I know that in, in today's society, that, that can be a, a hard thing for people to understand because really hard work is not really stressed anymore. But I can tell you that starting out in this industry is going to be hard work. But it is all about getting out of something what you put into it. 
right? If you don't put in the effort to learn this industry, then you're probably not going to go anywhere because you are limited by your knowledge. But the more knowledge you gain, that opens up doors for you. I could have gone to work for the state. I could have gone to work for the U.S. Forest Service. I could have gone to work for APHIS. Um, at any point, I've been asked by a couple people to move out of this into MDARD. I wasn't really interested in that kind of an agency quote agency thing special uh, agent gary eichen <laughs> yeah that's just yeah it's definitely not me so i mean but there are doors that open up when you show that you have the desire you've built your knowledge base you have the experience and all of that comes over time nothing in this industry is ever going to be handed to anyone you've got to earn it most managers in this industry are hands-on people. And so they want to see their employees working that same way, developing that hands-on approach. It's, and not just the physical digging holes and planting stuff. I'm not talking hands-on like that. I'm talking about taking care of a property, making the, the necessary applications, and then talking to the client and being able to explain what you did and why you did it and the environmental responsibility of your company and all of that stuff that you are, that's hands-on because that client is what is the bottom line importance to the company you work for. I've always told my specialists, those people pay your salary, right? So starting out and understanding that you have to start at the bottom and build a foundation of knowledge that now will eventually open doors as you move through the industry. And there's mul multiple opportunities. Um, I had a friend graduate from forestry, uh, Northern Michigan University. He has been a uh, forestry, what do you call him, forest ranger, out in Oregon in that huge national forest that they have in Oregon, and I can't remember the name of it. He's been there 35, 40 years now. So those kind of opportunities exist too, and they're always looking for people that have a background in this industry to fill those positions, right? So yeah. it's, it's up to you. It's up to the person as to, do they like to work outdoors? Do they work, like to work with people? Um, do they like to learn? Because there is a whole bootload of stuff you need to learn in this industry to really be good at it, right? Yeah, so I, I, I really touched base on that when I took the certified arborist exam yeah. because there was so much about tree work that I had never been exposed to. You right. know, my, my background, I worked at a commercial nursery for uh, seven years and we were in charge of potting all the trees and shrubs. Every year we would pot 50 to 60,000 shrubs and probably 10,000 trees you know, ranging from seven gallons to 15 gallons. We'd have to prune them all, root prune them. And so I knew pruning, but on small trees. Right. And so now you, you correlate that to big trees and what do you need to do, right? right? But there's there's so much depth in every direction you can go. Yeah. You know, I was at ArborCon. Yeah, I was at uh, ArborCon. What was that, back in March? And, you know, I was in a class where these people were talking about being uh, consultants, but for court cases with trees. Right. And it's like, right. that's a whole profession in and of itself. It is. Consulting is. It's, yeah. it, it's uh, I've done, I've testified in, in three different um, cases of, of tree damage um, to properties. Uh, that is a part of what I've done. I do not accept court cases anymore. I do not want to testify and, and get not a your thing. No, it, it to me, um, what I would have to charge to do that is is not practical. Most people wouldn't pay it. All that one gentleman was uh, totally um, in agreement with paying me what I had requested, which was totally outrageous. It was just <laughs> I, I did it just to, so he wouldn't use me, but he was willing to, and I finally had to say no, and I can't do it because I'm not. I just it's it's very stressful work. Um, I bet. And there's always, it always seems that the other side can find an arborist who will say the exact opposite of what you've testified for. So it's who is the most believable 
um, and not necessarily who's correct in a court case. And that is just, that's not for me at all. So, yeah. but yes, that's a part of it. I've, I've done consulting work for, in fact, I'm, um, I have a, a large company I'm going out to this week um, that has some Austrian pines that are dying. This kind of, that kind of stuff I love doing. That's probably the highlight of my job is getting out on properties and diagnosing issues still um, at this point in my career. But yeah, it, I... Yeah, go ahead. I uh I was in a I had a client last year who I injected some uh Scots pines. He had some pines that were dying from pine wilt nematode. And so I told him, you know, it's like, well, we can inject these to prevent them, but who knows honestly if they've already been infected. Yeah. Right? That's very yeah. difficult to tell That's, right now. Yeah. And so uh we did the injection and then this year I went out there and I noticed that there was a branch way up high that had turned all brown, but the rest of the tree looked lush green. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, is that pine wilt or is that storm damage? And I told them, it's like, well, let's revisit this in 30 days and, and see if it's changing additionally in the tree. That's all it will, if it's pine wilt, 30 days, that tree will be smoke. Yeah. And I mean, I know the temperature is a little bit cold right now, but that's what I told them, right? It's like 30 days. Let's give it 30 days and see if this spreads or if it just stays there, then it's probably storm damage. Right. And with the ice storms that we've had and the wind storms that we have, he's up high on a hill. So, you right. know, who knows? But you know, he was willing to take the chance to try and save his trees last year. Nothing you could have done anyway. It's, yeah. I, I was on uh, Fox 2 News. Oh, God. Must have been 10 or 12 years ago when Pinewell was first discovered in Michigan. And I was sitting next to the guy from MSU that they called the nematode dude or the nematode guy. That's his, like, his email address or something. He was <laughs> explaining to me that that insect, multiplies at the power of 72 every hour that's insane so you start out with 72 nematodes and it's not actually any kind of disease it is the fact that they are clogging the the vascular system by their population explosion that it really causes a decline in the tree so i have this other friend who was as extension forestry extension agent university of nebraska lincoln and he taught up here for years he taught up in michigan for years he worked with uh, the wedgel injection system and that was the first system that came up with um, abbott macton as a preventative injection for uh, nematodes so he was he injected a tree on the university of nebraska lincoln campus with nematodes 72 microscopic nematodes he injected that tree was dead in 18 days from the population explosion there's a time lapse film of it it's absolutely mind-blowing to just watch branch after branch shut down as these guys progressed up through the tree absolutely mind-blowing and it's yeah like, it, holy cow. it happens so fast you yeah. know when i first learned about it i i had a client um, and I said, I really don't know what this is. And I think I reached out to Matt over at Banner Sales and Consulting. And I said, Hey, what's yeah. going on with this? And he told me about Pine Wilt. And I called that client back and said, There's nothing we can do, which is unfortunate, but it is what it is. Uh, once um, it's expressing symptoms, because the tissue that you need to move the product is clogged, clogged. by nematodes. <laughs> so yeah. your product ain't going nowhere. You're SOL at that point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's not even good firewood. Um, <laughs> right. But that's, I mean, that's some of the stuff, to me, the interest level in this industry has always been the learning curve. Having, this is my 36th season, I'm still learning stuff. And yeah, there, to me, there are very few jobs that any person could have that you are still learning new things after 36 years. There's a point at most jobs, and I would probably say probably high 80% or more of jobs, where after 15, 20 years of doing it, you know everything there is to know about that job. There's no evolution to it. We are dealing with pests that evolve, hosts that evolve. This is a never always changing, constantly evolving industry. Not just materials, chemicals, and stuff we use, but the plants that we're taking care of. Grass is evolving. They have grass now that's impregnated 
with a chemical that repels insects from eating it, right? Uh, where was that 30 years ago? Like nowhere. This is totally an evolving industry that just never stops changing because our quote customers, which are the trees, shrubs, and lawns are constantly changing. So we have to constantly change with it. And that's why after 36 years, you can still learn stuff because yeah. it, it never stops changing never stops. And that, that kind of brings up the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about was what, do you, where do you think the future of this industry is going to go? I mean, right now, like I'll just give you some, you know, lawn care and even in heavy equipment, they're really going into um, automation and autonomous. You know, are we going to get to that point with lawn care trees and shrubs? I don't know that we possibly can because it takes it takes the ability of a human with an education to diagnose it. Are we going to have robots out there with, you know, LIDAR that can detect certain insects and then be like, administer this treatment? I don't think that we will anytime soon. No, I don't. No. I, don't I, I would say that, yes, there's been more technological advances allows us to do things that we couldn't do 30 years ago. Um, resistographs. I can now check trees for decay relatively easy. I mean, that's been around for 20 plus years. It's resistographs and nothing new, but it is technology and technology is changing some aspects of this industry. But to me, it's always going to depend on one living organism that's intelligent enough to be able to diagnose problems with other living organisms. I don't ever believe medicine is going to get away from doctors right? To be totally automated. And I don't believe this industry is ever going to get away from the need for a diagnostician that looks at a broad spectrum of things that a computer or even artificial intelligence is capable of not understanding. They sure can understand it. I'm sure they're, they're smarter than us. But observation skills in this industry have always been at a premium. When I hire a specialist, I look for someone that has great observation skills. Maybe they don't have great knowledge, but they can look at a tree and go, something ain't right there. All right, something is not right. Something's wrong with this tree. Observation in this industry is absolutely critical because that triggers the learning aspect. You're observing something. You know it's not right. You want to find out if you're that kind of person. You want to find out what it is that's not right. And that's what increases your knowledge base. It's triggering. It's like a row of dominoes. That thing that's wrong is the first domino. Knowledge comes and then the diagnosis and then the correct protocol are the last parts of the domino effect, right? So is this industry, could it ever evolve to being 100% automated or 100% AI? I seriously doubt it. Because it takes a living organism to understand the living organism. I think that's basically what it boils down to. And I think that's why we'll always be a part of it. Will, will we have better tools to treat or to, to put into place protocols for treatment of problematic plants? Yeah, I think so. We'll also probably have plants that have been genetically engineered to be more resistant to a lot of pest issues. Um, there's already a lot of work in that area, a lot of crab apples now that are resistant to apple scab that weren't available 20 or 30 years ago. So all of that, yes, that aspect of the industry will eventually, will continue to evolve, yeah. but I, I, I can't see it ever becoming, I can't see forestry ever becoming fully automated, at least not any time in the near future, really. Yeah. I, I can't see the the Eichen 4000 out there on tracks or, or a drone flying around spraying shrubs. Oh, you, know? you wouldn't want that. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No yeah. Way. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense too, right? Because, you know, it takes you, the knowledge base and the training that comes with it. You know, I don't, do you guys, do you guys over at Save a Tree, do you focus a lot on, you know, visible root flares and air spading or anything like that in your training? In fact, I got a specialist. I'm probably going to have to do some injections next week uh, with my PHC supervisor. I haven't worked with her now in a couple of years. She's been over there. She worked with me for like 15 years. And I left her in charge when I came 
to work for corporate, um, which is this is my office. This is where we're in my office doing this podcast. I work out of my basement now, which is kind of a drag because there's times I don't even know what the hell's going on out there. Right. Yeah. It's raining, it's snowing, whatever. Um, but yes, because our injection specialist next week is out all week doing um, air spade work on trees that have definite root issues. And you're seeing a lot of it, and most of most of it is two causes. Improper planting causes girdling. There's some species that are genetically predisposed to it. Norway maples, I that as a, as a means of how a tree becomes girdled. I think it has to be taught, and it's usually taught by people who don't plant it properly for the tree to begin to circle roots right it it's not yes genetically predisposed i get all that but if it's planted right you can overcome that genetic predisposition so she's out and then the the other reason is grafting um trees that are grafted there's a war at that graft union between the two species the stem species whatever it may be in in case of most grafted right now are red maples october glory red sunset and then the root system which is a black ash for most red maples because they want that teardrop canopy shape and black ash grows in that perfect shape. And red maple is more like a silver maple. It grows all over the place. So they take a red maple, plop it in black ash roots. And now there's a war between those two species for the entire life of that tree as to what DNA is going to be dominant. And the root system is almost always dominant, but that war creates that girdling effect too so she's out probably i'm i'm not kidding i looked at her list and it was like half red maples all week so it's yeah. that's what she's doing yeah we do um i wouldn't call it a lot but we probably do more than most um for okay. sure we're one of the biggest branches in doing tree spade work um other than the virginia branch that does a lot because they're based washington dc and most of the trees that were planted in Washington, D.C. were not planted properly. They were thrown in to make it look, city look really cool because it's obviously, right, the capital of yeah. the country. So they, they wanted to look good. crap in the ground, and they did a really poor job of it. So they do a lot of tree spade work, but we're probably number two in the company on it. So I got you. I have a, an air spade job I have to go do tomorrow. Uh, a maple tree, pretty sure it's a red maple that uh, – the homeowner that's my client, his neighbors were the ones that planted it when they owned that home. And oh, wow. it's, it's been it it's been in decline. And so he said, Well, what can we do? And I went out there and I checked the um the compaction of the soil. It's compacted to all oblivion. Yeah, it almost but... looks like there's a there's an adventitious root system that's coming off of it. You can't really see the flare. Yep. And then yep. while we were walking the property, he's got these two beautiful um eight foot in circumference oaks out in front of his house. And one of them has a lean towards his house. And I'm looking at the ground and the ground's all disturbed all on the outside edge, opposite of the lean. So on this side, uh -huh. it's like, what, what happened here? He said, Oh, we had a, a downspout drain installed. And I said, you did. You trenched. Nice. And <laughs> I was like, we need, we should investigate this because if you tore up any roots, these trees could be compromised yeah. and you're probably going to want to remove them. Yeah. So that's, that's right. what I'm doing tomorrow. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, that's that's um, the physiological effects of, of plant health care are a lot more important than the chemical ones. And it's tree health. I remember Dr. Shigo said, um, patient, heal thyself. And that's really what our goal should be, is to create or to help trees overcome what the situations that we put them in. In the urban forest, we cut roots, we put in new sidewalks, we put in new streets, we change the environment that trees grow in, and then we're totally confused by the fact that they begin to decline as a result of that. I don't, I don't quite understand that. If you were planted in the front yard and somebody came and cut off one of your legs, <laughs> that could be an issue. <laughs> and, and nobody would, oh, well, yeah, well, you cut off the guy's leg. No wonder he's in decline. But we don't understand the same 
physiological effects on trees when we do that, which is mind blowing to me. So we, we don't view trees as humans. They're just green no. background. No, that's we don't what I think. Anyway. Living organisms. No, definitely yeah. not. Well, Gary, you know, I know we're hitting the hour mark and I know you got a hard stop. Um, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to do this. You know, no if, if you guys are out there listening, I'm sure just from the few first minutes, then all the way through this, you can tell that Gary is an extremely educated human being when it comes to this industry. And so hopefully maybe we can have you on a, a, a second episode, maybe further on down the year. So we can sure. touch base with what's going on with you. Yep. But um, no, I just want to say, thanks, man. It's, it's always a pleasure to go hear you and listen to you and hear your information in classes. And I just wanted to capture some of that and put it out there in the ether for other people around the world to hear. Yeah. So no problem, dude. You have a good weekend. Yeah. You too. Well, weekend's almost over. It's about to be a good week. Oh yeah. You know? Crap. Back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I said, tomorrow I'll be air spading, so I'll be pretty dirty, but yeah. uh, you know, other than that, it should be good. All right. Well, you take right. care of yourself, man. Yeah. You too, Gary. All right. All right, everyone. Well, that concludes this episode. And I just want to say thank you. Hope you got some value out of it and take care and God bless. See you later, folks.